Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest for this episode, I want to share some information about Co-Enterprises, my company. It serves income-producing real estate market participants through four distinct platforms. First, I advise early-stage real estate companies on securing project financing and on forming and executing operating and financial strategy. My current clients include Brick Lane, a multifamily investment and development firm who began in D.C. and has expanded to the Southeast U.S. with many acquisitions and projects, and One Circle Co., an early-stage multifamily developer and investor in Boston who was nearing their first development project. Two, career counseling for early and mid-career real estate professionals with a program approach, including two one-hour sessions and follow-up six-months progress reports. My clients range from recent college graduates to mid-career executives who are contemplating change. And three, of course, this podcast, sharing knowledge and insights of market leaders. I want to give a special shout out to my associate on this effort, Colin Madden, who provides ProScript perspective and marketing assistance to produce the podcast. And finally, for deriving from the podcast listener base and my experience as a ULI mentor, Colin and I initiated the iconic journey in CRE, a community of young professionals from 22 to 40 years old who participate and contribute to online and live meetings, property tours, mastermind groups, book readings, and career resources. In summary, Co-Enterprise's mission is to motivate and guide high-achieving individuals and young companies to get the results they want, and in doing so, to elevate the D.C. area real estate community. To learn more, click on my website, coenterprises.com, or reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com to learn about any of these services. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me today for another episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. My guest for today's show is Brad Doxer. Brad is the founder and CEO of GreenGen, an international energy management firm that he and his wife, Debbie, founded in 2011 to initially focus on energy savings for property owners. Yet, the company has now grown into a source for net zero energy technology that improves sustainability for its clients' properties. His clients include governments, federal down to state, large institutional investors, corporate users, hospitality companies, and universities. Brad grew up here in Montgomery County, Maryland, and was the son of Bill Doxer, who was the founder of CRI, a major affordable housing investor and developer and syndicator back in the 1980s and 90s. Brad was inspired by his dad to join the industry 
after attending Harvard College and then subsequently Harvard Business School, then worked for some of the leading firms in our industry, including JMB Realty in Chicago, Starwood Capital in Asia, overseas, and then coming back to D.C. working for McFarland Partners prior to the global financial crisis. When that hit, Brad was inspired to look, instead of on the top line of income, he decided to look at the expense side and said, you know, how do we save money for owners? And that's how he got into the energy business. So that's how the evolution of his company started at that point. And he started it up in 2011 and started calling his large Rolodex of institutional clients saying, how can I help you save money for your bottom line? This premise then grew as a result of the ESG movement, which emerged right around that same time, but really exploded over the last perhaps five to 10 years and into the pandemic, of course. So basically, the industry came to him and his firm has grown significantly since then. During the pandemic, he's been hiring steadily growing his firm around the country and almost every continent where there's energy savings needed, Asia, Europe, and North America, of course. So the opportunity that climate change and renewable energy offered value creation for companies became really evident. So without further ado, please listen to my wide-ranging conversation with Brad Doxer. So Brad Doxer, welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate. Thank you for joining me today. John, thanks for having me. That's great. So describe your role at Green Generation today at a high level. Please explain the company's purpose and the position in the environmental business space. Yeah. So first of all, thank you, know, thank you for the opportunity to talk to you today. I mean, it, it's exciting, you know, particularly for somebody who is sort of tangential to real estate in some respects, although much more central today. So Green Generation or Green Gen has become, since our founding in 2011, one of the leading global ESG solutions providers. And what that means is we're helping primarily real estate investors and private equity firms, but some governments around the world, essentially transition to this low-carbon future. And that means thinking about the real estate, thinking about not just the strategic element, what should they do, but particularly helping them actually do it, actually helping them execute whether it's a decarbonization plan or an energy plan, we're really helping them execute in a manner that not only drives a financial return, but also at the same time drives a climate return. And you know, one of the things that we believe in you know, wholeheartedly is the idea that you can achieve both at the same time. And so the team today is lots of engineers, mechanical, lighting, and environmental project management analysts, that sit in the Americas, that sit in Europe, that sit in Asia, where we're helping you know, large firms, regional firms, essentially execute against their climate ambition because climate and ESG have become a fundamental, not just risk, but value opportunity for investors around the world as they look into the future. And really, you know, in a sense, as our purpose more than anything else, is to help people transition, but help them understand that it's not just about the cost. If they do this right, we're, we're basically helping them understand how they can increase the value of their assets and their business, but at the same time, 
achieve decarbonization and help make progress. So it's really important to us to help people and really demonstrate that it's a false choice to choose between financial or climate that you can do it you know, both at the same time. That's great. And what's your specific role in that, in that process? Well, you know, I founded the business in 2011 with my wife, Debbie, who I'd met at JMB Realty out of school and a mm-hmm. third partner, Rick Sandoval, who came out of Wharton and had worked with me at a prior company. So the three of us basically founded in 2011. I was and remain the CEO, basically guiding both the strategy of the company, its overall plan, and really the execution. And I, I suppose sort of, you know, the leading interaction with our clients around the world. That's great. So let's discuss your origins and education a little bit, if we could, Brad. Sure. I understand you grew up in Chevy Chase, Maryland, and your dad was Bill Doxer, the founder of CRI and Crimi May, significant multifamily investor and one of the pioneers of CMBS industry. He was quite an entrepreneur. What was it like growing up as his son? Wow, you know, it's a, it's interesting because, you know, I think there's so much of your parents that are sort of just basically integrated into who you are. And, you know, that question sort of causes me to sort of disentangle it and think a little <laughs> bit more about it. So we moved to D.C. when I was seven years old from Boston. Uh-huh. Uh, my father was the housing commissioner at HUD during the Nixon administration, really in the heyday of affordable housing. So he actually worked for Mitt Romney's father, George, who was the HUD secretary oh, at the time. And in his capacity as the housing commissioner, really resurrected the Section 8 program. It had existed for decades before, but really had not had much activity. There was also the below market interest rate, the 176 D3 program. And these programs were catalytic in terms of creating affordable housing across the country. They created millions of units that were either subsidized by lower interest rates. They acted with housing voucher programs, which were the hallmark of the Section 8 program. And it was really instrumental, you know, coming out of, you know, what today I think we think of as a fairly centrist sort of Republican administration who recognized that affordable housing was just key to you know, the economic vitality of the United States. So my father spent four years in government. When he left government in 1972, he spent two years as the president of Coffin and Broad. We're working for Eli Broad at Coffin and Broad in the asset management group. And when he was faced with an opportunity to either move to Los Angeles to join Coffin and Broad there, which was their headquarters, or stay in Washington, he made the decision to found CRI in 1974. And over that For time, listeners, could you give yeah. a background who Coffin and Broad was and is? Well, you know, Coffin and Broad was the largest developer and builder of, of single family rent, you know, single family housing in the United States for a long time. They were also the largest in France for many years. Mm-hmm. Eli Broad was a magnificent entrepreneur, a magnificent philanthropist and really central to the Southern California cultural scene. Um, built a museum, contributed his art collection to it, and was you know the guiding light, a guiding light uh, in the cultural scene of Los Angeles for many years before his passing. Mm-hmm. And you know when my father worked for him, I think you know my father had the opportunity to you know see great leadership in Secretary Romney at HUD, great leadership and lessons working for Eli. And 
Ultimately, he made the decision not to join Eli in California. We had literally nearly sold our house in Washington at that point, and we had to untangle that. I had sort of was enrolled in school in Los Angeles. We had to untangle that. And my father founded CRI in 1974, essentially to be and to become what was then the largest developer and owner of affordable housing in the United States. So what brought him to BC then? It was HUD. So we were, we were in Boston. My father was an attorney. And if you recall, in the, the mid-60s, Massachusetts had the Boston Strangler case. And so the Boston Strangler was essentially took 100% of the resources of the attorney general's office. The attorney general at the time was a gentleman by the name of Ed Brooke. Ed Brooke was an African-American Republican attorney general. He was elected to the U.S. Senate in 1967. And my father had been seconded to the attorney general's office because they ran out of lawyers because of the Strangler case. So every Boston law firm was asked to second lawyers. My father was at Choate Hall and Stewart. They seconded him at the time to the AG's office. And my father became very close to Brooke. And when Ed was elected to the U.S. Senate as a black Republican from Massachusetts in the 1960s, he asked my father to join him in Washington. He had President Nixon place my father at HUD to essentially work with Senator Brooke because his main issue was affordable housing. Interesting. That's fascinating. So you founded CRI in 74. Talk about that evolution. Yeah. So, you know, for a long time, you know, CRI was really focused on developing affordable housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of Section 8 and lots of work with state agencies, New Jersey, Michigan, among them, two of the most prolific. And it grew into one of the, you know, the real estate sort of juggernauts here in the Washington area. Over time, they moved into the debt side, developed an expertise in both sort of senior lending, but particularly in sort of the CM, what essentially has become CMBS. And he took that business public in the name of Crimi May. And that mm-hmm. was a play on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, sure. but just a play on that. That was, you know, took that public, you know, in the very early stages. Mm-hmm. So uh, talk about your mother. Her influence was on you. Well, my mother, like, you know, many women of those days was a stay-at-home mom. They had met when she was in college. My father was in law school. They got married during law school, and I was born at the end of law school. So I was a law school baby, born in New Haven when my father was at Yale on May the 1st. And sort of, you know, I like to joke that my bris was was the last good meal anybody had because they essentially got, you know, (laughs) it occurred in the second week in May. They graduated, you know, a couple of weeks later. And she really was responsible for raising, you know, me and my brother and sister, I think both my parents, you know, were influential in a lot of ways. My mother was very strong, a strong personality, probably stronger than many women in those days. You know, lots of opinions. Her mother had lots of opinions. She was uh, grew up in Queens. There was no shrink from Violet. And, you know, I think my father had a lot of influences on me that sometimes you don't even realize. He was very entrepreneurial. He did something that seemed quite risky at the time, starting a company leaving Kaufman Abroad, which was you know, going to be a very good path, but really with a vision of the business he wanted to build. And perhaps one of the things I'm most proud of, if you will, is the culture that CRI had. An amazing culture. When you look around the region, there are so many people that are in the real estate industry today that you know, began you know, at CRI in one way or another. It has seeded companies throughout the region 
It is seeded other companies, public and private. CW Capital is mostly Crimi May people. CapReit that Andrew Kadish now runs after his father, who founded it with my father and with me, started that business. It's really exciting. And really, I think it gave a lot of lessons that you could do really good work, but you could do it in a way that people enjoyed being there and really wanted to be there. And I think that's you know, something that you know, I've taken you know, right to GreenGen today. So you went to BCC. Right I did. The corner here. Literally up the street. Right. So why, why the public school instead of private? Um, you know, my family had a commitment to public education. We moved to Washington, lived in Northwest, and I went to Merch on Reno Road, public school. And then we moved, you know, way up Connecticut Avenue, about two miles, you know, to the other side of the line. And I think, you know, one of the things we liked about BCC is it, it provided tremendous education. But BCC is somewhat unique in Montgomery County in that it's really a city school. It looks like a city school. It's built like a city school in terms of its architecture. And it draws from affluent parts of Edgemore at the time, all the way up to you know, less affluent parts of Silver Spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it essentially represented you know, the world, the society that we lived in, the community. Right. Um, yeah. My sons went there. Ah, I didn't realize that. Yeah. And so, you know, they have, a, they had a vocational aspect of their program. They had a, sh- you know, they had an auto shop in the back, right. but they also had, you know, lots of AP classes, lots of, you know, education. There were 40 countries represented there when my sons were there. Yeah, and I'm not surprised by that. Yeah. If, if anything, I think that's low. And the difference is those people, you know, were not just diplomats. They weren't just the ambassadors and people, you know, working in embassies. They were people that had come as first-generation immigrants to the United States. And so it provided a much more interesting sort of tableau. And really, you know, the education was as much in the classroom as outside the classroom. Mm -hmm. That's great. So then you were fortunate enough to attend Harvard University. Talk about that. I did. And so my senior year, you know, I was admitted to Harvard. I actually deferred my admission to Harvard because I had grown up primarily playing soccer, and I had the opportunity to play in Europe. And you know, I like to, I like to sort of say that, you know, I had the greatest plan B ever. You know, it was admitted to Harvard, I had been able to defer. And so I had, you know, I'd been playing you know, soccer. I was a very good goalkeeper, and I became close to Gordon Bradley, who was then coaching the Washington Diplomats. And I had an opportunity to go play for two teams in Europe. One was in Glasgow. And honestly, I didn't really know where Glasgow was, but I knew two things. I knew that they had a Catholic team. I knew they had a Protestant team. And I couldn't quite figure out where the Jewish American goalkeeper sort of fit in on that. And it was really far north. The other opportunity was to go to Bristol and play with Bristol Rovers. And so that seemed more palatable to me. So I ended up after graduation going and moving to Bristol, England and spending what you know, was a very exciting year with Bristol Rovers. I experienced relegation. And for those of you who don't know, you know, relegation actually, I think, is the greatest thing ever in sport because it means the games at the top matter and it means the games at the bottom matter. Right. Our stadium burned down the first week of the season. Oh, my goodness. We ended up having to share with Bristol City the entire year. It was a very cursed year. And we knew in you know, March, about eight weeks before the end of the season, we were already theoretically relegated. But I had an opportunity to play with some of the top young players, Gary Mabbitt, who went on to Tottenham. Keith Curl, who became the skipper or captain of Manchester City, but also people at the end of the career. Terry Cooper was the player manager at the time. He 
He had played for England. He had played for Leeds. He was one of the best left backs ever to play in the history of England. And really, it was an opportunity to grow up fast. That was the year Margaret Thatcher came into office, Ronald Reagan, Princess Di, married Charles. And so I was being asked that, you know, to defend American policy, politics. And Were you the only American on the team? Oh, I was the only American by a mile. <laughs> as far as I could tell, I was probably the only American in Bristol at the time. About a, about a third of the team was Welsh because, you know, Bristol's just over the bridge from Cardiff. We had Welsh internationals. We had someone who we signed from Newcastle early that year. It took me six months to even understand what he was saying because his accent was so foreign to me. But I also had what I like to call the best plan B in the history of the English League. Got relegated. I had been admitted to Harvard. No one on my team understood even what that was. Barely the notion of university was quite foreign to them at the time. Uh, And so I left at the end of the season and entered Harvard in in the fall of 1981, a little over a year. You played the soccer team at Harvard? I did. Uh, and I had structured my experience in Bristol in a way that was, you know, NCAA friendly and had a wonderful time. Some of the teammates I had there remain, you know, I remain close to to this very day. Uh, some of them I've talked to in the last week and they're distributed, you know, in Europe and South America, That's Middle cool. East and, you know, throughout the U.S. That's great. You know, my son swam at Preston, so they understand, I mean, that whole culture of swimming or, or competing in the NCAA sports is, is an amazing well, aspect. I, I think one of the things you know, that I learned at Harvard, and you know, there's lots of lessons from, from Harvard, but the team sports aspect, yes. understanding yep. that you know there are times where it's about you, it's times where it's about your team, mm-hmm. and that you all you know do well or fail together. You can you can you know save every goal that's coming at you, but if you don't score, you didn't win. You can score three goals, but if the other team scores four, you've lost. Mm-hmm. And so that was really important. You know, my co-founder Rick Sandoval was the captain of Penn's football team. Oh, okay. So he when he was at Wharton, he was the captain mm-hmm. of Penn. His co-captain was Kevin Stepanski, who's now the coach of the Cleveland Browns. So we've always had sort of a team sports ethos here. Um, you know, and a lot of our most successful people, you know, played college sports in some way or, you know, or another. It's interesting. You, you mentioned Premier League soccer. Ted Lasso, if you probably watched the show, which has been out. They just talked about it just in the recent episode that there was, they were relegated or they actually got promoted to the. So it's interesting. American culture is, you know, picking up on, the, on a Premier League soccer experience. And I know that a lot of people watch it. Well, you know, I didn't know about the show until, you know, sometime during COVID, I was listening to a a podcast that Ken Kaplan from Blackstone was doing. And I'd known Ken when I was running Starwood in London. He was there, but he made a reference to it, how he had watched it with his kids and enjoyed it. And that was the first time I'd heard about it. Really, And so I quickly picked it up. And, you know, I think it does a pretty good job. It slightly glamorizes sort of relegation. You know, relegation has, you know, really significant impacts on your roster, on your economics. Typically, if you get relegated, you're cutting your budget to reduce your operating costs because the revenues simply drop, right. uh, particularly from the what was the old first to the second, now the Premier League to the championship. And it's really you know catastrophic. Uh, but I think they do a good job. I think U.S. sports would benefit tremendously from having that because instead, the teams at the bottom they're playing to sort of get a draft pick to some extent. They're maybe, you know, playing less in, with less intensity because they want to improve their chances of a higher draft pick. That doesn't exist, you know, 
in soccer leagues anywhere in the world other than the U.S. and That's MLS. Fascinating. That's fascinating. So what else did you do at Harvard other than play soccer? I assume you studied a little bit, right? I did. You know, everybody <laughs> studies a little bit in college. And, you, know, you know, Harvard, I think, you know, you have a big variance. Some people study a little bit. Some people, you know, all they do is study. And I, you know, I think I found a group of, you know, people that really good balance. You know, what I loved about Harvard, I think what people love about college is you get people from tremendously different backgrounds mm-hmm. um, and you get you know, you go from a place where high school is primarily people whose parents bought houses near each other. So the one, you know, as diverse as, you know, BCC was, it still was, you know, everybody was in a relative geographic proximity. And college and Harvard were not like that. And so you've got people from all over the world, first generation, you know, families were the, you know, the first to go to college. You've got people who've gone, you know, to Harvard for, you know, four generations. You've got people who come from wealth. You've got people who come from full ride. You've got people who have a fancy car. You've got people who are working three jobs to get through school. But the common thing is that they're all there and they're all committed to education. So originally my major was a joint degree between economics and government, government being sort of the Harvard word for political science. But at Harvard, if you do a joint degree, you have to write a thesis, you know, that you know, it's by definition an honors program. And I was, as I was writing my thesis, I actually never got an advisor from the government department. And so a month or so before graduation, I actually changed and dropped the government part to only economics because I had an economics advisor. I had a thesis that was going well there, but I wasn't going to get anything out of the government department because I'd never, you know, I suppose it was on me. I never quite got around to getting an advisor for my thesis from the government department. And I wrote my thesis on affordable housing policy, actually looking at Boston, looking at Dallas, looking at the policy implications and how policy could drive consumer choice, but also drive decisions on developers, and really what people valued, you know, what types of housing was being developed. Um, a lot of it was sort of econometrics, looking at census tapes over thousands and thousands of units to sort of think about and pull out trends that are really hard for you know, people to do, but easy for computers to do, you know, at a time where the census tape, I actually had reels of tapes. This is one wasn't a thumb drive. I literally had reels that we were sort of putting on machines and running it through to an empty reel on the other side, like a cassette. And it was pretty tedious work compared to sort of what you'd be doing today. But I played soccer at Harvard, you know, spent a lot of time, you know, in my major and also sort of exploring sort of all the academic sort of opportunities there. Because they were pretty tremendous. And Boston was, you know, was a fabulous place to go to school. It's a lot of fun there. Yeah. So after Harvard, then what did you do? Well, you know, the thing that I knew from growing up, you know, with my father was real estate. I didn't really know what I wanted to do exactly. Uh, but the main investment bank, sort of banking CRI at the time, was Merrill Lynch. And my father's banker at the time, Marty Chica, who's now at Evercore, he had two big clients. He had my father and he had JMB Realty in Chicago. At the time, JMB was the largest real estate firm in the U.S. by a mile. And so I interviewed with JMB and ultimately joined JMB after college. I'd never lived in Chicago. I didn't know anything about Chicago. The first night I actually ever slept there, I worked there. So I'd only gone for the day for interviews and to look for an apartment. But JMB was the, the most exciting real estate firm in the country at the time mm-hmm. um, in terms of raising money, in terms of buying things. You know, the Carlisle funds, which were primarily retail, the institutional funds, 
it was an extraordinary place to learn. And this was, of course, the pre. This is pre nineteen eighty six. So this was the syndication era. Um, you know, so and those were the Carlisle funds. You know, right. so those the Carlisle funds were all focused on raising money from broker dealers, right. um, where they were traveling around the country, you know, relatively small tickets, but relatively speaking, lots of these relatively small tickets that aggregated into an awful lot of money, and so. We were seeing, you know, every type of deal, every asset class all over the country. The first deal I ever worked on was a multifamily deal in Southern California. And I ended up staying for seven days at the Ritz-Carlton Laguna Niguel. And my reaction was, I love work. I'm I'm, I'm staying in an extraordinary hotel. I ran into some of my father's friends. We're like, what are you doing here? They're on holiday. I'm here for work. And it was an extraordinary place to learn because, you know, if you know the history of JMB, John Schreiber and John Krukel left JMB to start Blackstone. Blackstone. Barry Sternlich joined in 1986 to start Starwood Capital. Mark Mogul was in the same class with Barry in 1986. He came out of Kellogg. He eventually moved to London and started Benson Elliott, which had become Pinebridge, Richard Lee. Everyone at Heitman over the age of 50 is ex-JMB because they bought the JMB institutional business. And they were all attorneys. Dozens the of part, firms. The original partners were all attorneys. Neil, written, Bloom. Neil Bloom was an attorney. Judd Malkin was not. I believe okay. Bob Juddelson, who was only there for a brief period of time and then left to start Balcor, was. Interesting and, parallel between JMB and JBG here in Washington. Similar, except JBG was very local, development-oriented. But this, the orientation of the company seemed very similar in, in the orientation. What, what's your thought about that? Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of parallels. I think that, you know, again, as you said, both sort of attorneys, both people sort of looking at this, to some extent, working for others and saying, let's form a partnership to partnership. do this together. And, you know, the success of JMB more than anything else was the people. Right. You know, pretty extraordinary people you know, that were there at that time. And that's not just the sort of the top people, it's the next tier down, you know, and much of our business today is really coming off the roots of JMB and then Starwood, which I joined, you know, later on. That's great. So you were in acquisitions for them or investment analysis? Yeah, basically, you know, they called the acquisition group. The senior guys were called godfathers. So they were the deal sponsors. (laughs) That would be, you know, obviously... You know, Neil Bloom, it would be Michael Herzberg, who went on to Ferguson Partners. It would be Bruce Duncan, who went on to First Industrial, REIT, John Schreiber, who went on to Blackstone. Right. You know, those so dealmakers. You know, yeah. Got it. Interesting. That's cool. And we were we were running hard. And you were in um, Chicago the whole time? Chicago the entire time. Mm-hmm. On the third and ninth floor of the Hancock building, which is so where I'm the at, office was. Uh, in 1989, no, no, 1991, I guess it was, I met George Karras, who was running, I think, running the office here at the time. Well, he was running with my wife. So George was in Chicago. He moved to Washington, which is where he was from. And he ran the office here with Eric Magenthal, who is now at Walton Street. Eric moved back to Chicago. My wife, Debbie, moved here when we got married in 1989 and ran the office with George. You know, and, you know, George and his wife, Susan, who's now at JLL after the HFF acquisition, remaining, you know, really good friends. Our kids grew up together. Our kids, you know, our sons all went to college together, you know. And again, I think that typifies sort of what was going on in those days. You know, people like George, you know, just people like Barry Sternlich, you know, 
these were all people that had an outsized influence, you know, on their industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after two years, you decided to go back to Harvard and get your MBA. Why did you do that? Well, I joined JMB, you know, as sort of a two-year analyst program, and they they really had a good program. So John Kukrul had left prior to me to go back to HBS. In my class of five analysts that joined in 1985, three of the five of us went back to HBS. And I think, you know, the, the reason was I understood real estate at some basic level. There were so many things I didn't know. You know. Harvard is notorious for basically being liberal arts sort of education. So there's one accounting class, but it's not, it's not teaching you business. It's trying to teach you really more how to think and how to sort of basically take large amounts of information and synthesize them into sort of better decision making. So I felt I had a real sort of gap on the business side, which would be best addressed you know, by going back to HBS. And I was right. So did you focus on finance? Did you know that real estate was going to be your career at that point? Even when you went back? I don't know if I knew for sure. It was, you know, the thing I knew, you know, and it's funny because, you know, Harvard then only had one real estate course. Bill mm-hmm. Corvu taught yes. it and he forbid me from taking it because you don't, you know, you know like too it. much. You can't take the class. So he eventually, my second year, had a half, sort of a half a class. Because you can take that, but I'm not letting you take the whole one. Um, because he had known my father from Boston. He knew of my history, you know, from CRI and from JMB. And it's like, this is not a good use of your time. Interesting. Interesting. But, you know, I think, that, you know, Harvard, you know, again, is really a generalist program. So, you know, you don't come out with any specific major. It's hard to sort of go too deep in any one thing because the coursework doesn't allow you to go too deep in any one thing. The first year is set. You sit in with your same section. I, I sat next to Dave Schmeyer, who's now the president of Salesforce. You know, next to him was Brennan Swords, who just left as the chairman and CEO of Wellington. And so, you know, people went on to really great careers. But the thing that was, you know, I loved about HBS is that it took people from all sorts of different backgrounds: engineering, operations, manufacturing, military. By far the most impressive people I saw at HBS had come out of the military, out of their service academies or not, and then came to HBS because they're typically a little bit older and much more driven. I joined, I was 23 when I graduated. So I, you know, I came back to HBS at 25. I was very much on the young side. I think the mean was probably two years still at that time, but the mode was sort of four or five years in terms of experience. Right, sure. And, you know, found it thrilling to sort of see all these different types of experiences, you know, coming to sort of think about how to run a business. Mm-hmm. You know, one person already had a PhD, but he wanted to start a business and he felt he had a business gap. So he just was going to tack on an MBA on top of his PhD. Mm-hmm. Really exciting time, a really exciting place to be. So you left HGBS and your dad said, come home, come he, work. For he did. Um, I wasn't, and I wasn't strong enough to say no. <laughs> you know, I, I suppose at the time I probably didn't overthink it. You know, I think with hindsight, you know, you always wonder if you'd make sort of different decisions. I'm loath to ever sort of want to make a different decision because I very much believe in sort of every single thing you've done has led to something else. Of course. There's a movie called Sliding Doors. And the, and the idea is that, by either just making a train or just missing the train, literally the sliding door uh-huh. changes your entire life forever. Yes, so even does. things I might look back and say weren't you know great decisions or I might have done differently have led me to this moment. You know, think about the 
million different binary events that have to have occurred for you and I to be sitting right here together. And so I joined him. CRI at the time was, you know, 250, 300 people. We had a partner who was 10 years younger, who perhaps had a slightly different vision of sort of me joining in my role, but it was a very exciting place to learn. Really talented people were there working really hard at breakneck speed to make a difference. You know, they were, again, similar to the business that we've created today, they were really doing something that was from a societal point of view, very important, affordable housing, giving people a place to live at a, you know, that was affordable so they could raise their families and, and go on to economic prosperity. But at the same time, they were doing it in a way that you know, really was fun and people wanted to be that, that cultural aspect, which is so important to me today. So what did you do while you were there? What was your role? Yeah, so I did a couple of things. You know, a lot of it was around strategic initiatives. So early on, I helped my father on CRI access capital from Asia. They had one investor at the time from Asia. We expanded that. There was a lot of capital, particularly coming from Japan at the time into U.S. real yeah. estate. The leasing companies, the construction companies were all looking for different toeholds in the U.S. So I spent a lot of time doing that. We then looked at our multifamily equity business. And recognize in the early days, there was a lot of transition from private to public. And so we created what has become Capri. Initially, the idea was that it was going to go public, but it got caught up in capital markets sort of changing almost overnight. So in the middle of the roadshow, to go public, the capital markets essentially closed. What and year was that? That would have been... Ooh, 8992 3 so this was around so, the reed explosion. Yeah, no, this was the this was the reed explosion, not around, it was. Okay. And so we had this was the earliest days of the upreed. So we had a series right. of our right. own assets and then we were also getting third parties to contribute to an upreed structure sure. we were taking interest in the overall reed and capital markets closed and they just closed overnight. Ultimately, about six weeks later, we did a transaction with Apollo where Apollo acquired all the interests in CapRite and operated as a private company. But you kept it as an REIT structure. It was initially as a private REIT structure, right. but but private. Big distinction, private, not public. Sure, got it. Okay. And so really, you know, most of the time was on strategy. I had agreed to basically help take that company public and then turns out it was private. I was the acting CFO at the time, but I had also understood that I did not, I did not want to be the CFO of a REIT. And so my agreement was to get it to the capital event and then I would exit at that point. So then you went overseas apparently, right? To Asia. Well, I, I'd always loved the work that CRI was doing in Asia. I just thought there was a really interesting opportunity instead of capital from Asia inbound to the U.S., there was an opportunity around capital from the U.S. into Asia. And so I left and started for about five years a multi-strategy fund focused on Asia that was investing with other managers and everything from real estate to equities to credit, convertible bonds, debt. We were looking at different strategies, different markets, and really, you know, in very early stages of you know, fund of funds, essentially, and operated the fund, which I describe as a 
critical success, but a box office failure. We had great performance, just that it was so narrow. Um, we were basically trying to convince people to have an allocation to Asia when they were really thinking about, do I want to have you know, exposure to the U.S. or international? And it was a little too narrow to get a, a broad following. And so we ran it very well. The summer of 1996, you saw the currencies devalue and collapse in Southeast Asia, the BAT, the Malaysian ringgit, among them, Korean won. And we'd actually positioned the fund really to profit from that, but it also meant that the likelihood of being able to raise money during that period of time was, you know, nil. And so Barry Sternlich, who I had met when I was in college at Harvard, I met him in the gym. So he was at HBS, graduated in 1986. I was at Harvard College. I met him in the gym. We started working out together. And a year after my joining JMB, I see this guy come through the door for the MBA recruiting class. And I go, you're the guy from the gym. He goes, I am. So I had known Barry for a long time and stayed in contact. We were at each other's weddings. Our kids were generally born at the same times. And he called me in the fall of 96 and said, you know, Starwood continues to do great. We're a global opportunity fund, whatever that means. Don't, you know, don't have a lot of global expertise. He knew some stuff, but his team generally didn't. And so I joined him officially December of 96 to essentially to create the international business for Starwood. And when we did that, we really, we sort of looked at Asia and we looked at Europe to sort of see where the opportunities were. As you know, Starwood's roots, you know, were in the RTC days. So originally buying NPLs and it was a really exciting time. Europe had a lot of opportunities. It looked more traditional. Asia had a lot of opportunities and a lot of it included NPLs that had come out of this you know, currency crisis. And so we decided to start in early 1997 in Asia because the NPL market was very similar to the roots that Starwood had from its origins. And so the first investments we did there, we were buying distressed buildings uh, in Japan. Partner there was Nomura Real Estate and Development, NRED, which continues to this day to be a leading developer there. We also took control of a very interesting company called Sansiri in Thailand. Sansiri at the time was a listed company with an equity market cap of $2 million. And so we were able to invest a million dollars essentially to control half the company. I joined the board as the vice chairman. Sansiri had 200 people, the top 20 of which 19 were educated in the United States uh, with master's degrees. And we used Sansiri platform to help us underwrite the NPLs we were buying in Thailand. The FRA, Financial Restructuring Agency, looked like the RTC. And it was a really exciting time because there really were only six groups that were buying all the MPLs. And that included GMAC, that included Mesref, Morgan Stanley, Sonny Kelsey, now at Bentel Greenup, was running it at the time. Lehman Brothers, Brian Prince was running it at the time. And the six of us were running around buying all these MPLs. Where were you living at the time? I was living primarily courtesy of United Airlines. So I was, you know, we, the fa- we never moved the family. We never moved the family from Washington to Greenwich, which is where Starwood Capital was at the time. We didn't move to Asia, but I was going there essentially every month for 10, 12 days. So back and forth, back wow. and forth, just, you know, a constant swing, but moving very quickly. You know, Debbie will tell you that we probably applied to seven different international schools during my you know, nearly decade you know, time at Starwood, and we never ended up moving. Um, and so just lots of travel. And we were putting, a, I put a team in place. I had people in Thailand. I had people 
in Hong Kong, I have people in Japan. And, you know, it's interesting because we look back and, and our call on Sensiri, you know, was right. Because today, the CEO of Sansiri is the favorite to become the prime minister of Thailand when they held the election in early May. And I was there just about two weeks ago, meeting with the Sansiri team. They're now, you know, 200 people when we were involved with them. There are over 4,000 people today. They're the leading developer of residential real estate in Thailand. They own the Standard Hotel in Bangkok, the Standard Hotel in Ho Hin. They own 25% of the Standard hotel company because my analyst at the time, Amar Lavani, went on to acquire the management company Standard and has grown that business. And Sansiri and Zeta, who's the CEO, has been investing in the company and they've grown together you know, very well. What lessons did you learn culturally doing business over there? Oh boy, lots of questions, you know, lots of you know, lessons. You know, we took something that looks sort of simple, real estate. You know, I knew real estate. I knew how that worked. But you add on top of it changes and differences in currency, tax, customs, how people work. I tell the story all the time. So, I, you know, I spent four years building up the Starwood business in Asia. I put a team in place. I got Ken Moncasey to come in as the managing director for Asia. Ken has a long story career in real estate. He's up in Boston now running a family office called Kingbird for a leading family out of Puerto Rico. And then I went to Europe. And I remember very well, I was negotiating a joint venture agreement with a partner in Germany, DIC, Deutsche Immobilien Schanzen, which is now KKR's partner in Germany, and a public company called ADIS, which was listed in Milan. Munich Reinsurance was a 25% investor there. And I'm doing these both at the same time. The German agreement, the German partner basically said, we're going to negotiate control provisions. It should take us a week. And so we sat in the lawyer's office in Berlin and we showed up at nine o'clock. We left at five o'clock, Monday through Friday. You know, what can I make you do? What can you make me do? What do we have to agree on? And then the, the joint venture in Italy, we literally sort of wrote it on a piece of paper. We signed it in the back of a boat at five o'clock in the morning after six days sort of in the south of France. One was an agreement that was so good, you'd never have to look at it again. The other was honestly so completely worthless. The Germans started right on time. Meticulous. The Italians basically would get there, they'd show up. We need to go have a coffee. Yeah. So you'd go down to the yeah. canteen, have a coffee, work for nine minutes. Yeah. Ah, it's lunchtime. Yeah, exactly. um, both were great partnerships. Both yeah. were great relationships, but they were very different. And understanding sort of how people work. You know, you don't write on the back of a business card in Japan. A business card is a very reverential Sacred. thing, how you deliver right. the business card. And so, you know, it's, there was the business, there was a the business of doing business. And I think that, you know, has held me really in good stead because, you know, the business we have the, today is really a global business. The difference between the Thai and the Japanese way of doing business. Is there a difference there? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, certainly in our experience, I mean, you know, the relationships in the and the companies and the partners in Japan were more corporate. Um, the relationship in Thailand was very family. It was you know, two families, you know, that ran the business. It was very different. It was, you know, Thailand was much more informal, much more direct. There's a lot of opaqueness associated with doing business in Japan. Yeah, that's interesting. 
So you learned a lot about international culture, it sounds like. Every day was, listen, every day you want to learn something. Some days the lessons are big, some days the lessons are small, but every day you should be learning. And I'm assuming that, I mean, I'm jumping ahead, but I'm assuming that's helped you with what you're doing now as well, that those experiences. Those are the lessons that are basically foundational to the business we have today. That's great. That's great. So then you joined, I don't know why you left Starwood, but you did. Well, actually, it's, it's, it's I think it's pretty, it's pretty simple. I mean, you know, I was traveling like crazy. So, you know, after I left Asia, you know, and I was founding the, the business in Europe with the different joint ventures, mm-hmm. um, I was traveling there three out of every four weeks. I'd leave on Sunday night, I'd get there on Monday morning, I would travel around to three or four different cities, capitals, countries, and on Friday night, I'd go home. And so it wasn't clear if I was home, you know, lived here or if I was in Europe three out of the weeks. But Barry ultimately said, listen, you know, you're traveling like crazy. And, and I described it. I had the best job, you know, in the world is if you weren't married or didn't like your family. But I was married. I have an extraordinary family, you know, the best wife, the best kids. And I think the ultimately we realized it just was unsustainable. And so that the decision was made to sort of, you know, leave, you know. We, I remain very close to the Starwood team. We do a lot of work with them around the world. Barry is one of the investors in our business here. But I think, you know, probably Barry recognized that, you know, if I didn't stop, you know, working for Starwood, you know, then, you know, I wasn't going to have a family to come back to. And he travels as much still as <laughs> you did then, probably. I don't know anybody who travels more. But again, his business is truly global. He has, you know, right. He is, you know, a global leader in real estate. His, you know, his business is global. I think his impact on markets and leaders elected and private, you know, is truly global. And I think, you know, that travel that he does is what gives him, you know, tremendous insights and data to grow, you know, to start with so successfully. I mean, he and Sam Zell, as far as I'm concerned, are the, the number one real estate investors in the world, in my opinion. I, I think there's lots of people who, you know, offer up a lot of names, certainly, you know, Barry and Sam, who've known each other for a very long time, you know, going back to Chicago days, you know, are two of those names. And certainly, you know, there might be other names to add to the list, but I certainly wouldn't argue, you know, those were the, you know, among the most prominent. Absolutely. So then you joined the Farm Partners Group. So what, tell me about that affiliation. Yeah, so I'd known Victor a very long time back to, you know, when he was at GE capital and some of the work we was doing around housing that coincided with CRI and my father. And, you know, one thing about Victor is Victor is very aspirational. And so he had successfully raised a lot of money from CalPERS on a separate account basis. Eventually he raised a, another fund, which was multi-investor, but it was led by CalSTRS. And he needed somebody to run and, you know, the Washington business because Washington was sort of integral to his business plan. And so after a lot of back and forth, I agreed to join them. It coincided with them, you know, having access to lots of capital. Washington is one of the four key markets as a, you know, that he was focused on in addition to New York, uh, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. And the team here was, you know, more than 10 people very, very quickly. And you know, he was deeply aspirational. So, you know, we did some really great deals here, both direct on the real estate we did some interesting deals here on the CalSTRS-led emerging manager program, which is probably the first emerging manager 
real estate fund there was in the United States. And it was very exciting times. Talk about some of those deals, if you can. Well, I think that the most exciting you know, deal was you know, basically the emerging manager investment we made with Jair Lynch. So you know, as I mentioned, my background is sort of in soccer. And I became in 1994 the chair of the World Cup sure. here in Washington, D.C. with my wife and John Koskinen, who eventually you know, was the director of OMB. He was the Y2K czar. He was the Freddie Mac chair. But Debbie, John, and I chaired the World Cup here very successfully. And it gave us a really good insight into international sports. And we went on then to not only run the World Cup here in 94, but the Olympic soccer so Atlanta was a host in 1996. Washington is one of the four cities that hosted the soccer here. We bid on that. We ran it together. It was you know, ran out of my office for quite some time. And that led to a very early recognition that the Olympics after Atlanta needed to eventually come back to the United States. And so Debbie and I were two of the co-founders of the, Olympic, the original Olympic bid for Washington, D.C., yeah. And I still remember we had to you know, raise $100,000 and post it to Colorado Springs. It happened to me on my birthday, May 1st. <laughs> and so we were running around, you know, getting checks from different people, convincing the bank the checks were all good and they could wire the $100,000 to Colorado Springs. But when we did that, one of the things we did very quickly was create this idea of an athlete advisory council. And when we sort of pushed it out. Jair, who had gone to Sidwell for high school, had gone to Stanford, and received an engineering degree, but also was a silver medalist in Atlanta yes. in gymnastics and parallel bars, uh, was the very first person to sort of answer the call, the very first person to sort of walk through the door to basically say he wanted to get involved. And so that began you know, what is now a lifelong you know, friendship and relationship. We watched what he was doing, and I was always impressed with him as a person. I watched what he was doing. And when we created this emerging manager program, one of the very first things and groups I thought of was Jair. Jair had been at the time elected as one of the two athlete representatives to the USOC. So in that capacity, he was going to Athens for the 2000 games. And Victor McFarlane was also going to, to the Olympics basically just because he loved the sport, you know, the idea of sports. And so I connected them. They quickly developed a relationship and a friendship, despite sort of being, you know, Victor about a foot taller and by volume, probably three Jairs. <laughs> and, you know, and when we created this, you know, Calsters led emerging manager program, the very first deal we did was to invest in Jair's company. Um, and that was both top co sort of in the company, but also asset level equity for his investments. The first one we did was Solera, which was on 14th, I think, in V, 35, 40 units of resi. So let me uh, plug two former podcast guests of mine. One is Jair Lynch, who gave us a very good story about that initial investment and his company as he grew it. And the other is John Green, who worked for you at McFarland Partners. Yeah, also. John, was, John was one of the first hires, you know, and I remember, you know, we were still trying to, inter you know, figure out if we wanted to have him join. I picked him up at the hotel. I spent a day with him driving around. You know, he'd gone to UVA undergrad, Harvard JD MBA. Very, very impressive. Somebody Victor was very keen on 
and I, you know, and my, you know, my impression of John was even greater than Victor's. So listeners, please listen to both those episodes in reference to this, this experience. So then 2008 came. So what happened at that point? Well, you know, there were a couple of things that started happening. One was McFarland Partners, you know, went through an extraordinary transition. Yep. There were four or five sort of different things going on that generally you would think of as being uncorrelated, but they all sort of went bad, you know, close, you know, at the same time. A land deal that McFarland had led with CalPERS in Southern California, a large investment that McFarland made with JVG in terms of sort of acquiring a bunch of their entitled land at a time where entitled land lost a lot of value very quickly. Victor had acquired control of VC United, but was unable to get a stadium deal done and a few other sort of similar things. And so the business of McFarland Partners on a go-forward basis clearly wasn't going to be acquisitions and raising lots of capital. And so I agreed with Victor to leave because you know, my goal had been to grow the business and growth wasn't you know, going to be part of the business plan in the short term. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was doing a couple of different things at the time. I was helping a local developer run and sort of strategize about their business. I was helping some entrepreneurs think about energy as a potential driver of real estate value. And ultimately, uh, with the financial crisis, you know, our business historically had been very simple. It was always about top line, about rents, it was about lease up, about market, and that collapsed very quickly. And we began to look at the bottom half of the income statement, a place that most real estate investors had never spent much time. And it turns out that energy was very big. It, contr- it turned out it was controllable, which is interesting because it seems so obvious to us today. But at the time, it was not an obvious insight that you know, expenses like energy could be controlled. And technology had become much more powerful. So there was a business case around the idea of integrating technology in the built environment, drive your OPEX down, your EBITDA, our funds from operation would go up. And you would get a co-benefit of climate, ESG, sustainability, you know, the words we use today, but didn't really use at the time. Was there one situation or occurrence or something you saw or read or heard or talked to that really triggered this, you know, there's an opportunity here? Well, you know, we, we saw we saw the the ability to actually, you know, impact and lower your operating costs. Okay. But when we, but the idea was like. Debbie and I certainly were not thinking we wanted to start a business, but we went out to hire somebody. You know, we really just found a lot of consultants who wanted to get paid to tell us what to do, but not actually implement or execute. Mm-hmm. We started asking our friends at other real estate firms and private equity firms, you know, who's your go-to? They didn't have anybody, which is extraordinary because they typically would have somebody for every category of spend. And, you know, these all these different firms out there that, you know, you know, buy my light, my window, my motor, my software. And they couldn't articulate a business case. They're like, oh, the payback is good. It's like, I can't put an adjective into a spreadsheet. It just doesn't work. And so Debbie and I, and ultimately Rick Sandoval, recognized that there was a business opportunity here. I'm not sure we thought, you know, a lot about how big it was or, you know, what it would look like. We just knew there was a business opportunity. So we founded GreenGen in 2011 really to focus on driving down, you know, at the time, the primary thing was utility costs, electric, water, gas, and steam, in a manner that would improve the value of the asset. So this was before the environmental thrust, to some extent, or was it it part of that? 
I think it was probably before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are, you know, I want to be sensitive because there's plenty of people who've been doing this for decades, mm-hmm. you know, and would say that, you know, this has been going on for much, you know, long before 2011, but it wasn't something that sort of real estate and private equity investors were thinking a great deal about. And from the beginning, I think that the thing that we were focused on was really how do we drive a financial outcome? Because in a sense, when people sort of said invest to improve climate, you know, investors, their reaction was, eh, no. When you turned it around, when you simply changed the semantics of it and said, you know, invest $5 to save $1, let's say into a hotel so we don't worry about, you know, expense reimbursements. You spend five, you save one at a six cap, that one becomes $17 of equity. So you spent five, you got 17. When you sort of explained it that way, people were like, yeah, what's next? Let's go. And so we built up the business from the very beginning. And, you know, none of the three of the founders, you know, are engineers, but we recognized early on what we wanted to do was marry understanding of buildings, the building science, the engineering with execution. So that meant, you know, one of our first hires came out of the trades, you know, from mechanical subcontracting, but to do it in a way that understood what motivated, you know, real estate investors, you know, that was really sort of, yeah, the bottom line with co-benefits of climate or resiliency, but always led by the financial outcomes. And if you did it right, you could achieve both. You know, I think one of the things today is that there's a lot of discussion about, you know, can, you know, is it climate or is it financial? How much will climate cost? We believe you can achieve all of them at the same time. You just have to be thoughtful about how you design it from the outset and you achieve these multiple goals. So one of the hallmarks of your strategy in value creation, and there's a quote, I guess it's from your website, transitioning the built environment to a zero carbon future, we make climate profitable. Perhaps cite examples of how green generation, green gen, has implemented this strategy in buildings and infrastructure. You have several case studies that are in your book. I cited six of them here. If you want to talk about those or any other ones. Well, yeah, first let me just you know, give sort of the quick background. Sure. We operate globally today. So we're in the okay. Americas, we're operating in Europe, we're operating in Asia. At the end of last year, we had projects in more than 18 countries. The team is about 50 people today, lots of engineers, electrical, mechanical, laying, environmental, project managers, and analysts. We have a center of excellence in Kerala in India. That's five people today. That will be more than 20 by the end of this year. And we primarily work with, you know, the world's leading investors, you know, think Blackstone, Starwood, KKR, Allianz, DWS, Macquarie, Schroeders. So if you had to learn a little bit of engineering here in your process of yourself, just understand what they're doing and how they're doing it? I think I've had to understand, you know, the importance of building science. And I think what we've done is we've married sort of building science with financial sort of acumen. And that's been one of the great sort of insights that we've done. About 10% of our business is public sector. We have a couple of contracts with the U.S. government, Enable, one with the Army Corps of Engineers. We've worked with the state of Maryland, D.C. Water, Washington, D.C., World Bank, IFC. So, you know, a variety of sort of groups like that. And I think, you know, every one of our projects includes both the idea, you know, of what it will cost, but also the value that it brings. I think the thing that we particularly do well is not just a strategy piece, not just telling people you know, what to do or what they should do, 
but we expect to and are prepared to and often do actually execute the strategy and the recommendations at the asset level, at the portfolio level. You know, as firms are making these broad sort of commitments to decarbonize by 2050 or 50% right. by 2030, the only way they sort of get there is really by asset level interventions. And you basically take all the asset level work you do, you roll it up, and that's your portfolio level sort of success. And so you have to be at the asset level and you have to be doing it really well. I think that, you know, to some extent, the projects I like are the ones that not only have a financial outcome, but they have some other sort of benefit. You know, perhaps one of the more interesting ones is we did a project for the U.S. government a number of years ago for Homeland Security and CBP. So we were selected under our Enable program to upgrade the U.S.-Mexico border in the Yuma sector, 10 miles of lighting. Fundamentally, it was taking a 60-foot pole, basically cutting it to 40 feet, and then putting an LED on top. The entire project was conditioned on the idea of the energy savings and the maintenance savings. You know, the U.S. government and CBP, they can't afford to have a light out. So if a light went out, they had to immediately get up there and replace it. It was expensive to maintain. It was expensive to operate. The savings were nearly 60% across operations and maintenance. But one of the things that CBP said when I was visiting with them in Yuma they said, this will, this will never get in a report, but one of the greatest source of complaints and issues with our colleagues on the Mexico side, and the, the Mexican city in Yuma is built right up to the border, so it's right on the border, is light pollution from the lights at night. They shine into the lights, into the houses. Kids don't sleep, bad educational attainment. It impacts health. This is going to have a tremendous impact on the families and houses right on the border. We're going to take credit for it. We're going to basically make sure they know that we were thinking about them. But it won't get in the report. It wasn't a savings. It wasn't a condition or a reason for the CBP to do the project. But they knew that this project that was financially motivated would have these co-benefits that would be very important to the people who are living on the border, their health, their safety, their education. Talk a little bit about the business model that you have. So you approach a big institutional client like Blackstone, for instance, and you say, we'll help you with portfolio, you know, energy savings of X over a period of time, and we'll look at one building at a time, da da da, da. So what's your what's your pitch to them and what you know how does FreeGen get paid and all that structure? Well, I think probably the, the biggest sort of evolution in the last five years has been this evolution from strategy to execution. Okay. Five years ago, it was generally enough for an investor to tell their LPs that they had a strategy. You know, we have a net zero strategy, we have a carbon strategy, we know what to do. Uh, and the LPs largely were satisfied. You know, five years ago, the due diligence question or the DDQ from a potential investor was probably on ESG a singular question, do you have a strategy? And even if you didn't, you probably said you did. Most people did. Today, those DDQs are upwards of 100 pages on ESG. Wow. And so we quickly moved from, do you have a strategy? Do you know what to do? To, are you doing it? And they want you know, to, you to attach your GRESP submission. Are you 
doing TCFD, are you a UNPRI or UNSDG signatory? Speaking acronyms (laughs) This whole world of acronyms, which really (laughs) encompasses ESG today, there's tremendous knowledge in sort of what you're doing. How much progress did you make last year in reducing electric, water, or gas? Give an example of what it looks like as you integrate ESG into your CapEx, into your budget, into your renovation. And so the world is transitioning from you know, the strategy to the tactical execution. And we sort of designed GreenGen to actually execute. The difference now is people know it will drive the value of their assets. They know it will decarbonize. That aligns them better with, and on the regulatory side, it's mostly in the cities in the U.S. So Birdo in Boston, local on 97 in New York, BEPS in Washington, all of them are requiring you to reduce your energy intensity. So you have to do it or you're subject to a de facto carbon tax. That's become a new lever for us, which is actually wonderful for us. In Europe, it's primarily at the national level, but you need to show progress. And so investors need to do this. We have some investors who recognize that they don't have a strong ESG program and they run the risk of getting disintermediated from the capital markets. They will not be able to raise money. LPs are reluctant to take meetings. Consultants won't even take them forward or review them. And so people recognize that ESG is driving the value of the assets, the value of the organizations, it's reducing the fees, it's helping them raise money. And in part, that's because the world of two stakeholders, you know, you've been involved in real estate for a long time. Ten years ago, I would have described this as a two-stakeholder industry. I own a building. John, you signed a lease. That's it. Now, it's the person who signs the lease, it's their employees, it's their customers, it's their investors, it's their debt investors, it's the elected officials, it's planning officials, it's you know their customers, their supply chain. We now live in a world where there's more than a dozen stakeholders, every one of which has the ability to impact your business. But if you align with their values, if their aspirations You'll be able to get a permit quickly. You'll be able to hire people better. You'll be able to raise capital faster, all of which have a massive impact on the success or failure of your business. And so what we're really seeing today is this massive acceleration in focus on how climate and ESG and resiliency impact the built environment. You know, our work is mostly in you know, CNI, but we also have worked on pharmaceutical plants, manufacturing plants, breweries, cold storage. Everybody has a physical asset, needs to be focusing on this. What about the data center industry? How are they managing their energy use? That's a tough one, well, seems to me. Yeah, I mean, data centers has is, is become a really interesting sort of investable asset class with a lot of our clients either doing them in their larger funds or raising dedicated funds or doing them sort of in, in an infrastructure fund because they think data centers are often thought of as an infra asset. It's hard. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a net zero data center owners, you know, alliance, but, you know, they're very energy intensive and they, their success and failure is really on uptime and knowing that they have backup. So, you know, it's a lot about having better configuration of the racking. So, you know, where does the heat go? Can you repurpose the heat? Is there another use for it? Can you co-locate, you know, heat-loving assets, you know, with well, data centers because they're heat generating? 
can you use absorption chillers to basically convert the heat to energy or cooling? And so it's about more efficient equipment, but it's also about the source of power. It's about, you know, can you integrate more renewables? It is the primary driver of the renewable industry in Virginia uh, because, you know, Northern Virginia represents the single largest concentration of data centers of the, in the entire world. Right. But you've also seen data center owners and developers getting smarter about where they locate. So you've seen more and more data centers being located in the Nordics, you know, further north where they can basically take advantage of, you know, colder seawater to cool or cooler air. Uh, and, and people are much more sensitive to the cost of power where they're co-located. You know, we're sitting here in Washington, D.C., which has three jurisdictions. They have Virginia, Maryland, and D.C. Each one has very different utility markets and, and, and energy markets. And that's not because the, the generating the power is different, but because the regulatory environments are quite different. So uh, you have a significant capital markets background and a huge Rolodex starting with your dad's influence, your Harvard MBA, your, your work in Asia and Europe, not to mention your relationships in the corporate and real estate world. How do you leverage those relationships to build your platform? Well, to a great extent, that's sort of our entire business. You know, we, you know, we are entering our 12th year, we're about to have our 12th anniversary. Uh, to this day, we have no dedicated marketing, no dedicated business development. We're very fortunate in that the vast majority of our business really comes from, you know, either, you know, Harvard College or HBS. My wife went to Michigan, both of which are deeply overrepresented in the real estate and PE world. <laughs> go, go blue. And then also, you know, JMB and Starwood. And, you know, JMB really is the mothership, you know, of the real estate opportunity world, either first or second generation sort of derivative funds. But the, the exciting thing is, you know, what we ask for people is, you know, for, for, to give us a chance. You know, we know a lot of people, we get a lot of first meetings, and we're very clear with people because I know somebody in your organization or I know one of your board members doesn't mean you have to meet with us a second time. It probably means that you had to meet with us once. If you like us, if you give us a chance, you'll work with us again. If you don't enjoy the experience, you will not. You know, we don't call people. We don't, you know, if somebody, you know, in an organization says they don't want to work with us, we don't go around them and call, you know, the board or the chair, or the CEO. That's simply not our style. But the real estate community co-invests a lot. The ESG directors and people running ESG at the major firms around the world cooperate and talk to each other a lot. So when somebody takes a position and asks their peers who they work with, they almost always get our name. And so we've won major groups in the last couple of years, not because we called them, but because they, they asked around who was good and who executed and delivered outcomes, and they got our name. And so that really, really drives our business. You know, we tell everybody in the organization, everybody is in marketing because you know, everyone here is very client-facing. We don't have people sit back. You know, Our guy in Italy talks to Blackstone all the time. Our guy in Paris talks to Schroeders. Our guy in London talks to Macquarie. The people here in Washington are talking to our other clients, KKR, Fidelity, people like that. Everybody is, you know, client-facing. Everybody has the ability to sort of impact our business positively or negatively. The good news is to date, almost all those interactions have been very positive. And so our clients recommend us to others, and we have a really great reputation for actually executing. 
Well, your success probably is bred in competition, as most successful businesses do. So talk about your competition a little bit and how do you differentiate yourselves? Well, it's it's a tricky question because you know the industry that we exist in is very fragmented. Right. There aren't a lot of big players, and and even most of the big players, you know, a Johnson Controls, a Schneider, a Siemens, people like that. You know, one day we're competing, one day we're cooperating, we work together. You know, the big brokerage firms, we work with them. Sometimes we work against them. Sometimes they recommend us. I, so, you know, to some extent, we're competing, you know, against a myriad of different firms. You know, a firm that just does, you know, New England, somebody who just does hotels, who just sells, you know, sensors or HVAC or lighting. There's a lot of the clients, I think, struggle initially to differentiate us from somebody else. But when they start to think back, like what they really need, most people don't think they need a report. They need an outcome. And the people that are in this space, you know, it's a much, it's a small subset of people who actually want to not just help you think about what to do the strategy side, but actually execute it. And that's my point about earlier and how the world has transitioned from strategy to execution. We deliver outcomes. We don't deliver reports. Reports are a means to the end. We deliver an outcome, which is typically financial with, you know, perhaps a reduction in greenhouse gases, but some combination of the two. And we work quickly. We understand our clients, you know, the three-year hold, we have two years to do everything we're going to do to get it in the trailing 12 months cash flow. So when they have a capital event to sale or refi or merger, it is now they're getting value for it. Are you in the compliance business like the ESGs of the world, the, that kind of thing? Or are you primarily focused on helping people from the high level strategically? So, for instance, I was a lender for many, many years. Every deal had a report. So you had to get a, an environmental or an engineering report from both on every deal, particularly after the environmental movement of, I would say, you know, when we had all the underground tank issues and everything else that caused problems, probably in the early 90s that started more, more than likely. So that's a, that's a whole different business, it yeah. seems to me, than yours. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. There's a couple of different questions embedded there. One, one of the fastest growing parts of our business is credit. You know, historically, lenders simply got a PCA. They it just right. really was looking, you know, how much capital to reserve. They sort of tuck it into exactly. the file. That was it. But I think one of the interesting things is now that you're seeing a lot of regulation. So London, for instance, if you don't have an ECP of B or better by 2028, you won't be able to operate. You won't have a permit for your building, which means you have now a really significant collateral impairment. And so lenders want to know if we're lending to this group, what's the gap to get a B? Do they know how to get to a B? Um, certainly the same thing is true in Boston, Washington, New York, California, Chicago, you know, lots of cities now because there's the fact of carbon taxes. So all of a sudden now this charge that might be a half million dollars, you know, could lead at a five cap to a, a $10 million impairment of value. And so ESG and climate have the ability to sort of impact the collateral value, which in turn impacts the loan to value ratio. For lenders, which is something they're really focused on. And they really don't know, you know, what that gap looks like. So we're seeing more and more interest from some of our equity clients who also the credit business to engage us on the credit business to understand what that gap looks like, but also 
to give some guidance to the borrowers so that they have, you know, simply better assets that they're lending against. Interesting. Interesting. So it's a cascading F effect is what you're saying. So Seth Godin, who was a blogger that I listen, I read every day. He's a marketing expert and a blogger. He, he coordinated and published the Carbon Almanac, which is a book that just came out recently, which is an assimilation of knowledge of many experts around the world to explain climate crisis and ways to address them down to the individual level. Have you read the book, and what other resources would you recommend to educate people on the issues in hand, climate? Yeah, so I actually haven't, I have not read Seth's book. There's a multitude of books you know, that are out today on climate in various forms. Some are technical, some are soft, some are policy related, some are aspirational, some are inspirational. But I think, you know, resources wise, you know, people should find, you know, the people they want to read, the style they want to read. Bill Gates likes a professor from Western Canada, Vaclav Smile, who has written 30 to 40 books. They're pretty quick reads. Bill Gates's book, was a pretty good right. read, you know, and then you've got, you know, all sorts of other people you know, that are writing different kinds of things, you know, but I think everyone should educate themselves on what the opportunity is and, you know, how they can contribute to a solution. Not everybody owns buildings and everybody's a scientist, but, you know, human behavior and the idea of truly creating sustained behavioral change is fundamental to addressing the climate crisis. Very recently, another blogger, podcast host, Shane Kirsch, interviewed Nathan Mirbel, who was the CTO of Microsoft originally, and who founded Intellectual Ventures, a think tank and innovator in energy patents. Um, he questions the viability of zero carbon emissions as the long-term solution to climate change, which I have a long quote here, which I assume you've read. I have. What's your reaction to his statement? And even if we stop emitting carbon altogether, the problem is still accelerating, apparently. He goes on to say that with geoengineering, with carbon dioxide removal and solar radiation management, two technologies he's working on with others to create, are you involved in any of these, this research and technologies? So I'll take the first. Actually, I think, you know, his quote and his perspective is completely misguided. Because if you follow the logic, you know, that, you know, no matter what you do going forward, there's already so much carbon in the air and it's going to be there, you know, for 100 years with, you know, multi-hundred year half-life would lead most people to just do nothing. You know, oh, the problem's too big. Oh, my impact doesn't make a difference. And I just think that, you know, that's a terrible perspective. You know, that's the idea that, well, if, you know, I'm only one person, so if I only make a small difference. Why, why bother doing anything? You know, there's, you know, oh, there might be better solar next year, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do anything this year. I'm gonna wait to see if it gets better. That's a common mentality, and that's just wrong. So we do what we can today. We do more tomorrow. The efficiency goes up. I mean, to, to a great extent, this is the Bill Gates versus Jigger Shaw, you know, battle. You know, Bill Gates generally believes, including geoengineering, you know, and other technologies, including, you know, basically solar radiation management and small nuclear that we don't have the right technologies. Jigar Shah, who's now running the DOE loan program and founded Generate Capital, basically is like, we don't have the right business model. And to really, it's both. We can deploy the technologies we have today and make a huge difference. We could get better technologies tomorrow, but the fact that there may be and will be a better technology tomorrow 
does not mitigate the impact of doing something today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every walk starts with the first step and, you know, you've got to get going. You know, I, I'm fond of saying my team has heard me say a lot. It's about direction first, velocity second. So let's get the direction right. And I think as a society, we're largely going in the right direction. We're arguing about the velocity and we just need to do more faster. But I think it's a terrible idea to sort of suggest to people the problem is so big that anything they do won't make a difference. Mm-hmm. So are you involved in any of those technologies, geo, geoengineering or uh, carbon dioxide removal and solar radiation? We're not. We're really focused primarily at the building level and sort of what the built environment looks like. And not, those aren't really technologies that the built environment is doing. Those are large scale, you know, types of public-private things. And solar radiation is essentially getting large scale mirrors to reflect. You know, you're talking about seeding clouds. You know, they did that in Beijing during the Olympics to basically reduce, you know, rain. We're not seeing that. We're not seeing that at building level. We're not seeing it really at the city level. Those are just large scale sort of societal things. And they're challenging because, you know, there's a free rider problem. If you do that, if you seed with, you know, silver halide clouds, to reduce rain or increase absorption, who benefits? And then, you know, climate and you know, Earth is a pretty complex system. So back to my, you know, sliding doors, you do one thing and you never fully appreciate what the impact of that will be on something else. That's a big issue. Will we as a human race be looking at adapting either through incentives or penalties via the government, governmental and or societal imposition? To address this issue in the long run, how will human nature of short-termism be overcome, in essence? Or will we need to be emergency reactionists like the vaccine producers were during the pandemic when an immediate crisis is upon us? What's your opinion on that? Uh, hmm. uh, there's, I think, a, a couple of really sort of big questions in there. Yeah, is, the crisis is everything, you know, it's... It's, it's everything, you know, it's all the above. You know, you can't take anything off the table. You know, most people I don't think are necessarily anti-nuclear. I think they're basically anti-unsafe nuclear. Right. So we need to be doing everything we possibly can, you know. But I think the, we're already adapting. You're already seeing, you know, basically ties disappearing. Some of that was COVID. Some of that is simply temperatures are higher. You're already seeing lights on public monuments, the Eiffel Tower, that were being turned off, you know, at night because we're trying to save energy. You're already seeing set points. So I was traveling the last six weeks in Asia and Europe, and for the most part, you know, most hotels now the, the set point in the lower bound is locked out, so you can't go below 21 degrees Celsius or 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. So I can't get the room cold enough to sleep, you know, the way I want to. It's locked because they're conserving energy. So we're already adapting. I mean, I chaired, before becoming a global trustee of ULI, I was the National Product Council Chair of, you know, for Redevelopment Reuse, Adaptive Reuse. So we're already adapting buildings. We're talking about technology. We're talking about going backwards to some extent, thinking about the orientation of buildings, thinking about overhangs to sort of, you know, make sure that we're sort of keeping out solar, you know, heat gain, thermal heat gain from buildings. You know, with louvers, we're thinking a lot about the buildings we design and we occupy and how we use them. We're thinking more and more about the times, you know, 
you know, how we use buildings and what we do. We're integrating resiliency into designs. We're thinking about gensets, not for emergency purposes, but to basically turn them on to basically offset peak demand charges to add capacity, virtual power plants you know, to the grid. We already are living differently. And the question is just, you know, will that go on forever? Will we get to a point where our ability to adapt and be resilient is overmatched by climate? And that's a, those are choices. You know, we, we have the opportunity to address it. The IPCC report came out just the other day. It says we have a small but manageable window to address climate change. And you know, I think the jury is out whether we as a society will do it you know, or not. I think there's a tremendous amount of focus on the cost of addressing climate change. I think what's really missing at the most basic level is addressing the value that's created from it. You know, someone will say, you know, it will cost a billion dollars to retrofit our campus or our buildings. What they don't talk about is how much will that save? And the implications are it will save us money on electric, water, gas, and steam, repairs and maintenance, insurance we haven't talked about, but it's a massively interesting category of spend as we think about investing in buildings and more resilient communities. There's some climate risks, you know, like Miami sees the same climate risk for hurricanes or wind. They don't have the same one for coastal flooding. So the idea of a high tide during a full moon, that will impact buildings very differently. Can you invest in resilience and create more resilient assets or not? These are choices that we make, but I think there's a clear business case for investing in all these things. Have you sat with property and casualty insurers to, to talk about, you know, what opportunities there are to, you know, with your efforts? Yeah. So as both as the global trustee of UI, but also sitting on the global sustainability board at UI, we convened just last month a meeting that included the owners, 3i, the Insurance Information Institute, property and casualty companies, and former and current FEMA officials into a conversation about insurance and resiliency at the asset level and at the city level. And it's a conversation I'd like, I wish we'd had 10 years ago, but, you know, ULI is, you know, taking the leadership on convening and aggregating these different stakeholders into a very dynamic discussion and conversation. It's really important seems to me. I mean, the cost of American society for all these, you know, amazing things that have happened is, well, the weather events primarily. But, yeah, um, but, but I, I think, you know, part of it is that for a long time we were, we were positioning the conversation wrong. We talked for a long time about, you know, the cost of insurance and the cost of, you know, insurance costs are going to go up. And since a lot of, you know, we mostly work with investors and investors are passing those through, sure. they didn't really care. The difference is today, we're now starting to talk about the availability of insurance as carriers simply exit the market and stop writing policies. Yeah. You know, you've seen companies, you know, you know, property casualty from exiting the market in Florida. And so the more you start to have a state program or a government run program, the more the less diversification of risk you have. So, you know, if you're if you're a PNC firm, you have a hundred assets, they might you might only have three in Florida, but they're all over the place. Florida has an event, the three there claim. If you have a state-run program, basically everybody's subject to the same risk, and maybe 50% of, of a Florida-run program will be basically making a claim at the same time. States can't borrow the same way. They can't go into debt the way the U.S. government can. 
So they're bankrupt, you know, the minute there's a, you know, an event or a claim. A lot of issues. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of, you know, solutions, a lot of people committed to finding solutions. And what I'm most excited about is the level of commitment from, you know, the, a broad range of stakeholders across the business community and society in trying to address them. Some of them are coming at it for different reasons. Some, you know, they think it's the right thing to do. Some are coming with a purely, you know, financial sort of proposition. I don't care a great deal about what brings somebody to the table, only that once they're at the table, we're going to help them understand that they can drive, you know, financial outcome and a climate outcome at the same time. That's great. So let's pivot to the real estate markets. Since we've been talking about that. How do you see the, the big changes in office and retail markets ahead impacting your business? You know, this is something that we've been thinking a lot about this year with rising interest rates, the volatility of economic growth rates because of COVID. And I think notwithstanding those things, our business and the drivers are pretty sound. Capital markets, LPs, aren't really wavering on their commitment to ESG, not because it's some woke thing or because, it's, you know, they just, you know, want to antagonize people. They do it because they know that on a risk-adjusted basis, they have better assets and better investments if they integrate climate as one of the key factors on this. I think the other thing is that the cities, by and large, have not backed down either. You know, certainly you haven't sort of seen, you know, cities like, you know, London and the UK say, well, the economy is slowing down and, you know, demand for offices is softer, so we're going to back off the ECP requirements. They're like, they've just reiterated them. I mean, New York, Boston, Washington, California, Chicago, they're reiterating that you have to basically do these things. They're not backing down. I think elected officials, plenty of officials feel pretty good about where they are. And so the big drivers here are full steam ahead. So if office space is only 50% occupied, which seems to be the case right now, can, how can landlords and tenants use technology to save energy? I mean, obviously, if, you know, people are doing three-day-a-week type setups. Yeah. You would think if you separately meter the office space, you could say, okay, we're going to shut down all electrical use for those days that we're not here, or if it's a flex yeah. schedule, you, you offset it. Do you get into that kind of thing, engineering with your clients? Very much do. And we think about it really is this idea of correlating physical occupancy with right. energy consumption. Exactly. And so it's about data, it's about better data, it's about actionable data. So, you know, if you knew X, then you would do Y. You need to run all the elevators at the same time. Right. Getting law firms to think about, instead of having every floor condition, everyone lit, you know, thinking about how to, you know, which ones to, you know, where should lights be on, where should HVAC be on. It's about sensors. It's about zoning buildings and systems and operations. And I think getting a lot more granular about, you know, not operating all your space or your whole building, but operating the part that's, you know, seeing, you know, economic activity. Mm -hmm. So I assume that drives new technologies, your sensors, Manufacturing industry, I mean, uh, you're seeding that growth, it seems to me, also, this, these, these new technologies that are coming in. We, we see growth everywhere. You know, our core business is helping develop a strategy and executing it, but we also have a group that invests in early stage technologies. Our engineers really? help identify what the key issues that need to be solved are. Our innovation technology group, led by my son Jake, work 
with early stage companies to identify those that are promising. And then our engineering team is really vetting them. Are you yeah. investing in them or are you hiring, raising capital to invest we, in these We are raising capital. We haven't been investing. We've invested in four businesses so far. And they're each addressing a different problem. Internet of things, sensors, indoor air quality, water leak detection, better cloud-based continuous commissioning. Each one has a technology that is differentiated in some form that our engineers have worked with them to identify what their key differentiator is. We typically have a commercial relationship, so we work with these companies for six to 12 months before. So before we invest, we know a lot about the company, the technology, the clients, the management. Uh, malls and other large retail facilities are largely underutilized. What recommendations have you offered to those landlords? Well, I, I think like a lot of people, yeah, we're trying to figure out what the future of the regional mall is. And, you know, it's maybe it's more like what the regional mall of the future. Right. You're seeing, you know, I think there's a couple of things. One, they generally represent large plots of land in relatively infill locations. There's opportunities to densify. They generally have a good port or transit sort of network to them mm-hmm. with or without light rail. Bus, they have certainly a bus service. So there's opportunities to do a lot more. You know, these issues are best addressed when you go from the building level to, you know, broader. So you stop thinking sure. about buildings. You think about campuses. You think about cities. And so there's microgrid opportunities. There's opportunities to you know, do more geothermal, think about more storage, to think about different uses that basically balance you know, the loads. So you have a hotel that has a lot of energy use in the evening. You pair it with an office building or office uses that use it during the day, hospitals that might want to use it a lot on the weekends. And you balance all these loads so that you don't have less costly to build the central plant you need. And it's more efficient because you're doing a central plant um, and you can think about is a bigger system. So thinking about as microgrids, thinking about identification, thinking about people want to shop where they live. They want to work closer to where they live. You have much, you have really have great opportunities to reimagine what, not just what the mall is, but what that land, what that site represents. So you execute a lot, but you do a lot of upfront analysis, I assume, with people for retrofitting property, I assume. So sit down, let's so for instance, Brickfield, which bought General Grove, is a big player. So in their client of yours, apparently. So have you sat with them and looked strategically at the at their mall portfolio and said, here are some things to think about? Yeah, that, that hasn't been part of that relationship to date. We've done that with others. Or we've done like it the, or the or we've done it at the asset level. Okay. I think this is you know a fundamental thing that all owners of retail are doing is trying to basically reimagine the value yeah. proposition of each of their sites. And the answers are all going to be a little bit different depending on where they are and what they do. Some may not have a future, you know, primarily as retail. Others will continue to be sort of retail led. But it's not the the answer is not monolithic, and so I think that's the challenge. Each site is different, each community is different, each community's aspirations and the community, you know, alignment with the community goals is really going to be critical as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, let me pivot to your company, if we could. So how did you build your team? I think one one of the greatest things that we've done as leaders is build a really strong team. This goes back, I think, to, you know, both how Debbie and I Know, the relationship we have with each other and the family you know, in each of our families. We each come from very close families 
And so we really wanted the people to work hard, but want, but to respect each other, want to work together. That was true when everybody was here in the office. That's true now that we've run a global team. Almost you know, none of the hiring we've done in the last two years has been in the Washington area. We've hired you know, places as disparate as China, Japan, you know, across Europe, Canada, wow. and then a bunch of cities in the U.S. But really, it's technical expertise is sort of a, is a binary issue. Everybody has to be really smart and really good at what they do. But then, you know, do they have the right personality? Are they team players? Going back to you know my team sport background, Rick's, you know, we understand that people with a you know team mentality will be much more successful than not. And so we really built the team. The challenge has been a lot of hiring on Zoom, and I think you know part of it has been the process, part of it's been a little bit luck. We also have invested enormously in our onboarding process so that people are really given a good entry to the company and orientation is not onboarding. So it's not what happens the first day, but our onboarding process, typically, you know, we think of it as a, is a six month process. You know, what happens the first day, the first week, the first month, I check in with every single person when they join the company at the end of their first day, just to see how it was. We have onboarding buddies who are people not in the group, just help people understand what's the culture of the place? How do we work? What do we do? How do you assess technical proficiency with these new folks? I assume that you have I don't. So that, you have a senior so member. So again, our engineers are talking to engineers. Our program managers right. are talking to other program managers. Right, our right. COO is involved. Our accounting and finance team is talking to the people. You know, we the people that they're going to be working with are the ones assessing them. Very uninvolved in the hiring process. I will get involved if somebody wants me to, but I am at the end of the process. By no means am I at the beginning. So you're more interested in how they get along with each other, more of the, the social, interpersonal relationships. I, I think what I care about is the value they're going to bring to the organization. Again, you know, we let everybody here be very client-facing. So everybody has the ability to influence our business and success in one way or another. So I really want to know that people, you know, I'm happy to let people make mistakes. I just don't want them to make the same mistake over and over. So I like to say the first, you know, the first one's a lesson, the second one's a mistake. If we're going to grow, then it can't be, you know, through a lot of micromanagement. You know, I don't edit reports. I don't edit letters, you know, when people send something out, might it might I have done it slightly differently? Probably. But if I am at that level of detail, there's no way for us to grow the business. And I have really you know high confidence in the operations team to run the business day to day, which allows me to continue to project, you know, on a more global basis, you know, what we do and how we do it. So was it project driven or did you have an initial mission and build around it as far as your business growth? I'm going to go for C. I'm not, you know, I'd love to sort of say we had, you know, we've written a really detailed business plan. We had a really strict vision. We saw an opportunity. We didn't see anybody focusing on reducing, you know, energy, electric, water, gas, and steam in a way that we understood. I don't know that we thought it through. I'm sure if I thought it through, I may never have done it in the first place, but maybe I was just, you know, dumb enough to actually do it. There was a period where we thought we were really smart. There was a period of time where we're like, oh my God, what have we done? And I don't know that we're, and we've been pretty consistent through sort of what we do. The world has come to us. Cities and you know, officials have come you know, toward where we are. 
So we're now in a place, you know, with a lot of experience focused on execution with a real sort of investors sort of mentality integrated into every single thing we do. And it's certainly holding us in good stead today. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that you've been very fortunate with the way the yeah. markets have moved in your direction over this time. So we talked a little bit about hiring, and I assume there's a type of person you're trying to look for. What, what, what type of person are you looking for? People who are really smart and technically proficient that are really creative. Um, I think our clients, you know, count on us to sort of think about out-of-the-box solutions. We have to put numbers against them. And ultimately, it's payback. It's about, is it accretive to the value of the asset? But we don't dismiss things out of hand because we think they're a bad idea. We sort of look at everything, and then we put numbers against it and eventually come up with you know, the right thing at the moment. Energy costs will change. Rebates and incentives will change. And so paybacks will change over time. So something that may not have been feasible today may be feasible tomorrow. Great. So let's shift to personal things. What are your life priorities among family Family. Work and giving back. Well, you know, listen, I think we've built a business that, you know, is both profitable, but also is making a big difference, you know, in the society and in our communities. So we've helped people understand that climate is profitable. We've helped them understand that, you know, this need to transition to a net zero world can be done in a manner that is both profitable. And so a lot of our clients, you know, the basic, their position is they want more. They want to do this faster because they recognize it is profitable. And part of that has been about expanding sort of the idea of where return comes from, whether it's these carbon taxes that cities are imposing, insurance costs, insurance, resiliency, leasing, you know, aligning with what tenants want in their buildings today. I think that's really been, you know, a, a key factor for us. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, you know, my oldest son worked with us. My younger son was at Starwood for five years and so knows his business. My daughter graduated from college last year is not working with us. But, you know, family is really important. You know, both my boys got married during COVID. So my family of five is now seven because I have two daughters-in-law. Each of my sons got puppies. So we're now <laughs> grandpuppies. And I, you know, while I'm certainly not slowing down, perhaps working harder than ever, I think that I am much more conscious about life and priorities. The good news is we've got a business that addresses, you know, one of maybe the, the biggest priority people should be having. So your your answer to giving back is what your business is doing, giving back to the, to the Yeah, family. I mean I'm not, you know, I'm on a couple of boards, but the priority right now is really growing this business and helping investors and governments around the world recognize that there's a there's a profitable way to transition to a low carbon future. So what are your biggest wins, losses, and most surprising events in your career? I think kind of all the same. I think it's just the, it's the trajectory and sort of the ebb and flow of this business. And I think really what's most exciting is, you know, the business that we're you know, growing today and, you know, how fast we're acquiring business. I mean, you know, we're, we, we've got investors that we're not even seeking out that are just finding us because they hear about us and we're signing contracts very quickly. We're growing the team. We'll grow by 50 people this year. We've essentially grown by nearly a person a week since the first of this year. Wow. We just had new we've got new people joining. I think three new people will join in the next month, including two in Asia and one in Europe. So we're growing every which way, we're, but we're doing it in a way where it's not about just growing bodies, but growing the right kinds of people. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the good news is, you know, people want to work here. People find this an exciting place to be because they're on the front edge of this. And so, you know, we have very, very high retention and we've got a good track record of attracting new talent. That's great. So the surprise might be, I'm just speculating, this the success. I mean, the growth and the trajectory of what's happened, would you say that's the surprise? Uh, I think for a long time it was slower than we thought. And right now it's a little faster than we expected, but we're deeply aspirational. So we, you know, sometimes it's messy behind the scenes getting work done. You know, the analogy of the sausage factory, everyone likes to eat the sausage. You just don't necessarily want to watch it being made, but we are working very hard to address all of our client needs. We're not saying no, we are deeply aspirational. So we're going to, we're going to grow the business as fast as can. I was at uh, MIPM and Con last week. We had a number of our larger clients in Europe asking us, you know, saying, we want to do more with you. Can you grow? I find it fascinating because, you know, none of them know that they're all asking this. They're all thinking about like, you know, we're 5% of your business. Can you grow? Can we double with you? It's like four of you asked the same. We had three asking the same question in the same day. The answer is going to be yes. We'll grow as fast as our clients want because their needs have changed dramatically in the last couple of years. So at this point, it's you and two other partners. I mean, have you thought about any kind of relationship with other firms to accelerate your growth at all? Well, well, we have four family offices, you know, that, you know, invested in us from the very beginning and they continue to be supportive of the business. You know, we're open to everything. You know, we don't have any, there's no, there's nothing we wouldn't do. There's no no's, you know, in our world, you know, ultimately if something's in the interest of two parties then they'll, you know, they'll likely to work together. So, you know, we looked at everything we have lots of partnerships around the world to help grow our business and execute better for our clients, particularly engineering partnerships in Asia. Mm-hmm. So what advice would you give your 25-year-old self? Ooh, 25-year-old self, probably pay a little bit more attention in business school. That's when I entered, I entered HBS at 25, so I, I probably would have gotten a little bit more out of that. You know, I, I don't know if I would have done a lot differently. I think... I married a fabulous woman who has kept me grounded, who I've grown this business with. We love running this business together. So, you know, I met her, you know, at JMB. We both worked for JMB, met her on the 39th floor of the Hancock. Uh, so I think I did pretty well there. I raised, you know, some terrific kids, you know, at my first just before 30. So I did a pretty good job there. You know, and again, you know, I would probably give advice, but, I, you know, I'd be loath to do too much because, Every decision I've made, good or bad, has, has gotten me to this point, you know, with this business sitting across from you. So I'm not sure I would change anything. And advice sometimes is intended to sort of, you know, change the trajectory of people's decisions. Mm-hmm. So if you could post a, a statement on the billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say? Well, so I'll close with this. So, you know, a couple of years ago, there's a science fiction writer, Kim Stanley Robinson. And I don't generally read science fiction, but he came out with a book called The Ministry of the Future. And the idea is that because of the climate crisis, the United Nations creates a new organization to essentially represent the views of the unborn. And they build this on, you know, in Switzerland, on the shores of Lake Geneva. And I think, you know, a a lot of the discussions about the future and, you know, future generations but well, there's a lot of people who are 
talking about climate without regard to tomorrow, all you know about today. And I guess the billboard would really implore people to recognize that the future matters. I find it sort of ironic that the 16-year-old is unable to vote, but the person, perhaps 90, who will be passing away next week does get to vote. Their interests are very different. There's nothing about climate that will impact you know, somebody in their 90s. There's everything that's going to impact you know, the life of the 16-year-old. I think it was the New York Times came out, maybe Axios came out with, you know, yesterday, a graphic that depicted the impact depending on whether you're born, you know, in 1960, 1980, or 2000, 2020. And the gist of it is basically going to be the temperatures in which you live and the world in which you live. You know, young people, the unborn, they have everything at risk. And all of us need to recognize that. So... It would be it would be a billboard that that shows you how important the future is and make sure that you know the decisions you make today incorporate the future. So if you had you know a one sentence statement, could you say state that? Well, I mean, still that down to a, a quick. We'll put on a bumper s- sticker. The future matters. The future matters. Okay, there you go. Like and the that. future matters today. Brad, thank you very much for this wide-ranging interview. John, thank you. This has been great. I loved it. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. So we just listened to Brad Doxer of GreenGen, which is the company he formed in 2011 after the global financial crisis to focus on energy savings. And it's interesting that instead of him making the market, the market has made him. (laughs) It's come to him. And it's pretty fortunate, but he has a very wide-ranging background, and you know, in the capital markets, and brings a unique perspective to the energy saving and, and green business. So, as I usually do, I'm bringing in my podcast postscript guest, and that's Colin Madden. Colin, welcome. Hey, John. Good to be here. This is another interesting podcast. I thought about Brad's career and personal and family life was super interesting. I thought, you know, just starting with his family, his father working in the HUD and then starting his own company and him going to Premier League soccer and then Harvard and then getting his real estate experience and then going to HBS and meeting Barry Stern Lake, you know, and then working with Starwood and international real estate. He's kind of like jumped around somewhat, but I feel like every Every chapter of his life has been super interesting and it was, it was very fun to hear about. And then obviously his latest venture, the how he pivoted into energy efficient solutions in 2011. And like you said, the market has come to him. And I would say in the biggest way of any market, one of the biggest way of any markets moving of recent years, because like you said, the ESG section of most pitch books used to be a page or a few bullets. And I think now his DDQs are like 100 pages on ESG and Meridian's doing the same thing. And we have a full team on ESG and full reports, annual reports nowadays. So everyone's doing it. And he uh, quote is kind of cliche, but the uh, Wayne Gretzky quote of skating where the puck's going to be. I feel right. like he, he perfectly uh, situated his company in 2011 to you know, accept all this business that I'm sure is banging down his door for. So 
Yeah, I got a lot of a sense of he's he seems to always be at the right place at the right time. Not just that, but knows how to execute on it. So I think a lot of people can be in the right place at the right time, but it's the execution aspect that people fail to do. So I thought that was super interesting. And he mentioned sliding doors. I forget what the quote was, but it's something about sliding doors and missing trains. What's the uh, movie? He alluded oh, to yeah. the movie. Sliding That's right. Door. Yeah, I feel like he's had a lot of sliding doors in his life. You know, I'm sure he has some lifelong experience from his his time in the Premier League and playing soccer overseas. And then, you know, all the international experience he's had, which he also mentioned is integral into how he runs his company today. So I feel like he's in the meeting Barry Stern, like in the gym and having a lifelong relationship with one of the greatest investors of all time. So it's, it's again, those right place, right time. but really having the skill set and the wherewithal to execute on some serendipitous moments, I would say. What did you think? <laughs> well, I think you summed it up really well. I think I'll just say some critical moments from that sliding doors idea of, you know, playing, you know, going to Europe, starting off, I'll state start state starting out. I, I wanted to spend time talking about his father and his, mm-hmm. how he created his company because his father was a pioneer and, in affordable housing as well as in the CMBS, the securitization business in real estate. And and then wanted to form a, a public REIT, but the public markets weren't good, but they formed a private REIT. Mm-hmm. One of the, both pioneering in all, all those aspects. So he saw that firsthand. And so he, he saw, you know, cur- the courage of entrepreneurship and all that. So I think he got that. <laughs> into his blood early in his life and then going to Europe playing soccer coming at Harvard had this vision of you know meeting the right people and wanting to get into real estate so he found out the best company to go to work for it goes to work for JMB Realty mm-hmm. in Chicago which was one of at that time one of the hot firms if not the hottest firm in the country to invest in real estate one of them certainly I was in Chicago when they were on on fire back in the mid eighties, doing mm-hmm. buying huge deals and being one of the major players. And he was there in Chicago at, at that time. So I didn't know him, but I knew he was there working really hard. But you know, people spawned off and Barry Sternlich being one of them was there, as well as the founders of Blackstone. So <laughs> you can't much get much more <laughs> potent than those <clears throat> those groups. And then, you know, Walton Street Capital evolved from that firm as well. Mm-hmm. So some big companies. Yeah. So he had that experience and then goes back to Harvard and gets MBA and meets Barry again. And Barry hires him, go to Europe. Well, actually, he went on his own after working for his dad for a while. But he kept mm-hmm. his network. He went, went back to CRA, worked with his dad. And then he goes to Europe, or I mean to Asia, and, and builds a, a Singapore fund and then meets Barry mm-hmm. and joins Barry's firm and Barry helps him, them capitalize with Singapore and, and Japan and growing there, doing all those transactions in, in Asia. And then he, he's traveling back and forth with, with children and his wife says, you know, might be good if you come back. So he says, <laughs> yeah, so Barry and he says, no, nah, nah, I think I'm going to come home. So he comes back and goes to work for Victor McFarland, who's one of the major 
investor at the time. Then the global financial crisis comes and hits really hard, and they had to recalibrate and basically let the firm, he had to leave. So he mm-hmm. and his wife sit down. His wife, of course, he met at JMB. So she has as much sparks as he, he does about real estate. And they figure out, you know, maybe we should look at the, the, the lower part of the balance sheet, you know, mm-hmm. figure out maybe expenses are a way to go after this. Everybody has to deal with that. So energy being one of them. So they focus on that. And at that time, it was just an engineering aspect. We, people didn't think about it from a from an NOI perspective, you know, increasing the NOI, which you know was a bit of a unique perspective. I mean, to build a business around it, at least. Mm-hmm. So they decided to do that, and boy, were they prescient! Mm-hmm. <laughs> they didn't know what was coming. Yeah, but, you know, the institutional real estate market, and then all operating companies, and then governments got on board the green thing. Especially when Al Gore wrote his book, and then on from there, this whole climate change issue. Mm-hmm. I think Bill Gates's book also hit really big. So you get yeah. people like that writing books about it, and Larry Fink, yeah, uh, Larry having, Fink of making statements on it. So yeah, the largest institutional investor yeah, in the ten, world, ten trillion dollars needs to go somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that does help. <laughs> so there's a momentum there that kind of came at him. And so he's very fortunate and he's as busy as he's ever been with his company. Yeah. So they started in 2011 and they've grown significantly. I think he's now has 70 or 80 employees or something like that, hiring two or three engineers a month to deal Mm -hmm. with all the new business. And he approached it uniquely. Very most environmental firms, in my experience, just sat there and waited for people to come to them. He was more proactive and would go and deal with and go after institutional relationships because he had them. Mm-hmm. You know, I said he had a Rolodex probably as good as anybody to go call on leading people. So if you get firms like Blackstone and Starwood mm-hmm. to engage you to do their work internationally, I mean, yeah. that's a pretty good start. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and just keep going. And then governments, you had GSA, hired them and, do things so i mean he's the sky's the limit so now it's quality control he has Mm -hmm. to make sure that the people execute and do it well sometimes it's pretty complicated stuff what he's trying to accomplish you know it's a lot of monitoring it's a lot of you know technological improvements and of course technology is changing rapidly with the iot and all these things that are going on so it's just it's amazing it's very hard at our, my company. We had a net zero energy task force. So I did like a pretty extensive deep dive into all of this. It must have been a little bit over a year ago now, but for a few months, we were talking to a lot of people, trying a lot of vendors and experimenting basically. But yeah, it's difficult. Even just something as simple as saying put sensors up in a building mm-hmm. is, a, is a huge problem just because you have to tie it into your BMS system. And now you need internet or Wi-Fi within like a HVAC duct. So it's just everything about it is challenging. So I'm sure him having a, a track record essentially with the largest real estate operators in the world of, you know, Blackstone KKR, like he said, is probably super beneficial because everyone wants to be doing this, especially if it improves NOI. It's just 
again, hard to execute on. And I keep coming back to that word because it seems like he's just a very good executor of everything he's, he's kind of worked on in his career. And I think it was pretty evident that the fact that he does have such extensive knowledge in real estate and, you know, the operating budget and NOI, et cetera, and like what the value means of savings on NOI. He's definitely a real estate mind and he's he's combining that with technical expertise in his engineers and MEP, et cetera. So I think a lot of the time when I was digging into this, you'd talk to engineers and stuff like that, but they didn't understand the full picture of who's who's actually benefiting from this. Because the landlord has to make the investment, but not always is the landlord getting the the payback that is marketed. So I think the fact that Brad has, you know, very deep understanding of NOI and how it will the payback will benefit the landlord is is probably why I attribute some of that success to that. Well, the other thing is he could educate mm-hmm. governments as well. And so, you know, as they're legislating around this stuff, because they keep reading and hearing about the climate change issue, one of the things is communication and understanding. And sometimes the legislators get ahead of what's feasible. Mm-hmm. So the way you have to draft legislation, I think, is it's asp- aspirational, but not mandated. And right. That's the part that you have to make sure because certain things you can achieve maybe with technology, but you can't forecast what that technology is going to do to get there. Mm-hmm. Now it's something you're building constantly. So you have these aspirational goals like, you know, DC, for instance, wants to be carbon neutral by 2033. Well, is that realistic for every building in the city to be carbon neutral? No. Yeah. I mean, especially as DC doesn't really manufacture any of its energy. So it's easy to write something down on a, on a piece of paper in DC, but then you're really dependent on, you know, you're dependent on the lobbying firms of coal in West Virginia because we get, we get power from West Virginia. You're dependent on, Oil and gas in Virginia, like that, that sort of thing. But I think you have to educate people and say, yeah. okay, make sure that the language is such that it's it, we're reaching for it, but we aren't mandated to, you know, you're not using a stick. Mm. You're providing incentives uh, to get there. Right. Carbon offsets and things like that. You get bonuses instead of using you know, penalties and fines and things like that, because it's just not going to get there. Yeah. But and I'm, I'm curious what BEPS, BEPS in DC, where they're mandating that all buildings are effectively improve their efficiency up to <clears throat> the average level across the city. So like that's, that's rolled out and there's going to be fines. Then you have to think like it's, it's the worst buildings that, are going to be failing this EPS program, and then is is the landlord really going to invest millions of dollars into? Well, another thing, to- yeah, another thing is impacting that right now, of course. Yeah, and that's demand. <laughs> <laughs> so if you don't have tenants, you're not going to spend the money. Yeah, and then if you kind of zoom all the way out, and what what are you actually trying to accomplish is like a low carbon world. You know, well, a low carbon to world tear- shut buildings down. Yeah, to tear down a to tear down a building and build a more energy efficient building, I, in my opinion, is you'll never have that carbon payback. So I, I would say the cleanest one of the cleanest buildings is the one that's already built. I so agree with I, I think there's just there's second order consequences in some of these policies, and I think it goes back to the education of 
what are we as a human species trying to accomplish? And I think sometimes, <clears throat> you know, a, a mandate looks correct, but there's, there's second and third orders of consequences that people aren't really thinking about. And I think this is one of them, but I digress. <laughs> well, what's interesting is, you know, and, and this is a bit of a dichotomy. Brad's doing everything he can to, to get this legislation there and to force people to do things or incentivize people to do things because it's only good for his business. But what's interesting is what's realistic. And, you know, he can't tell his client, well, you do this and you'll solve the problem. Well, at this point, I don't think we have the technology to solve that problem yet. So you can work toward it. But and of course he's doing that with his business, but it's you know it's a it's a process. It's not a solution, right? For instance, and that's the thing. But it's only benefiting him because you know it's kind of building on what he does. So all the money that comes in allows him to build more infrastructure and and keep doing it. So it, it you know he wants to feed that beast as much as possible. I guess is the way I'm looking at it. Yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah, and, and what he's doing is great. I think everyone should mm-hmm. be working with him or or at least solving to what he's providing. Well, it's I just, agree. It's just a very challenging yeah. issue. Um, mm-hmm. so I think everyone's on the right path, but I think there needs to be more knowledge sharing across governments and Agreed. and business owners because I think we're all learning. Even yeah. he is, and he, mm-hmm. as every day he's learning something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, you go to the Nordics, for instance, and they have a whole different framework i mean there is zero there some of the countries in europe are already zero energy or damn close mm-hmm. and for an upcoming guest i'm doing some research right now on the data center business in norway and what they use they have the fjords there that bring all this hydroelectric i mean norway is literally energy they're already mm-hmm. net positive because the amount of power they have relative to the limited amount of use that they have Mm-hmm. So places like that can, but you can put data centers in, and the cost of energy is so low that makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, and it's uh, colder there, so yeah, all the heat exactly. So depending on the existing climate where you are, it makes a huge difference on what you can achieve. Mm-hmm. You know, in in sub-Saharan Africa, you'll have a hell of a time <laughs> meeting the the climate. Right. Objectives. So again, I one of the things that people talk about is human migration. I think you know we as a species are pretty adaptable, and we have been for millions of years since we we were formed in Africa. We left pretty hot places there mm-hmm. to go to northern climates because we adapted to them. Right. I mean, going back in human history. Yeah. So when you think about it, we will migrate to adapt to the climate <clears throat> over time. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and I think as we've always been very adaptable to problems, that's pro- problem solving is what we're best at. So I think we're all focused on the right issues and, you know, I think we'll figure it out. I'm, I'm fairly optimistic. I think I'm in the minority of optimism, but uh, I kind of, well, I think I, we I kind of trust we can bail ourselves out of this. With I agree. Technology I, and we're a resilient species, no doubt. 
I believe in our our ability to do it. Stephen Pinker is another author who agrees yeah. with that thought process, yeah. and several people do. So, any other things you'd like to talk about at all, Colin, about uh, our conversation with Brad? Yeah, can you? Obviously, my career is like only uh, ten years old at this point. Can you dig into to how people weren't thinking about energy savings at all before? I don't know, two thousand eight or so. Well. I don't know if that's really true per se. I think mm-hmm. people were thinking about it and have been for quite some time. There was a another group that I read about that it built after the internet really blossomed into our industry in the early 2000s to look at energy usage and did some calculations, more of a mathematical model type of thing to apply to for energy savings. So there's there's been firms devoted on it to it. But not with the capital markets overlay that that Brad's company brings to it and his experience. So it was really more from an engineering standpoint and at the granular individual building level, not necessarily the portfolio, although uh, I'll say that there are developers downtown that have systems like, for instance, Bender, the, the Blake, Blake Real Estate has a system-wide thing that runs their HVAC, their, all their utilities. It's a control room. So they do all they can to, to maximize the, the benefits of mm-hmm. energy savings for their buildings. And they've been doing that for quite some time. So mm-hmm. this thought process has been around, you know, depending on, you know, a lot of people think about top-line growth and development. They don't think about the bottom-line in mm-hmm. operations, asset managers have been thinking about it for a long period of time, but it's not really been a, as important as you know what's happened since the GFC and written in the writing of books about climate change and that whole emerging thought process. So that's really has been the explosion, I think. So I don't necessarily agree that it's a very recent phenomenon. It's been around for a while, but just hasn't been as highlighted a, a societal. Yeah, impediment or an impetus, I should say, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because of the pressures from this perceived climate change challenge. I mean, climate change has been an issue probably for the last hundred years. It's just we didn't, we weren't aware of it, of its magnitude. So, I mean, since the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's all I had. Anything you wanted me to? No, I think we're hit on for good and. So fascinating conversation with Brad and listeners. Thank you for joining me. And Colin, thanks once again for a great conversation. We've got some really good upcoming guests for the, for the podcast over the next several months. So stay tuned. Thank you for listening. <laughs>